Okay, before we get into Scripture, I want to set the background, the context, what was going on when Jesus was born. I want to go all the way back to 44 B.C. It was that year, 44 B.C., on the Ides of March, that Julius Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, was assassinated. He had two heirs. One was uh, Antony and one was Octavian. They were both now sharing the power of the Roman Empire. Well, that never works, does it? When two powerful men try to fill the same spot, it never works. So Antony went and found some money in a queen named Cleopatra. They say there was a romantic relationship as well, and it could have been. But Antony needed the wealth of Egypt, and he allied with Cleopatra to go after this other heir, Octavian, and civil war broke out in the Roman Empire. It wasn't long. In fact, the Battle of Actium, 31 BC, when Octavian's forces went against Cleopatra and Antony, defeated them. They ran back to Egypt, ended up committed suicide, and that, that left Octavian as the sole emperor or Caesar of the Roman Empire. About four years later, he designated himself as the chief citizen of the Roman Empire, Augustus, the exalted one. So Caesar Augustus, the exalted emperor, ruled the world. And he wasn't just a human king. He fancied himself as God, and the Virgil poet said he was as well. The poet Virgil called him the present deity, the restorer of the world. Now, life was pretty good under Caesar Augustus. The, the world was experiencing peace, the peace of Rome. It's called Pax Romana. And ro economy was soaring. Roads were being built. Jobless rate was down. Things were going well. Economy was good. Buildings going up. And to entertain people, he brought in the gladiators to the Colosseum. Where they would fight to the death. Or they would fight wild animals. He also brought in circuses to entertain the people. Things were good. Things were good everywhere except this little piece of land called Palestine had Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea in the south. Only about 200 miles from north to south and 60 miles from east to west. About the size of New Jersey with the population of Pittsburgh. And these people would not bow before Caesar. They would not follow the customs of the day. They served one God. His name was Yahweh. And they only followed him according to his word. Now, Early on, this nation had been one of the strongest nations of the world. In fact, they had a king, Saul. He didn't work out very well. Then David came. David was a flawed man, but brought the, the, the spiritual aspect to the kingdom. Solomon, under Solomon, great temples were built. Under Solomon, Israel was the richest country in the world. Solomon was the wisest and richest ruler in the world. It said in that day in 1 Kings that other kings and queens would come and just to see Israel. They would come to see the magnificence. It said, scripture says that in Israel in that day, silver, think of this, silver was as common as stones. The queen of Sheba came and said, man, I, I heard about it. I imagined it. But this is much greater than I could have ever imagined. 
So Israel, they were doing some great things. Economy is soaring. Things are great. Wealthy country. But their ruler Solomon had a divided heart. Do you remember to have alliances and some for romantic reasons. He married a bunch of women, had a bunch of wives, and his wives, it said, drew him away from the worship of God. So right after Solomon, the kingdom split, went into civil war. You had Israel here in the north, and then you had Judah in the south. And for the next years, they fought back and forth with each other. Brothers killing brothers. Then the Assyrian Empire came to be. 722, the Assyrian Empire, uh, the Assyrian Empire came in and devastated Israel, the northern. They took them into captivity. So now you have half of Israel. This great country, now half of them off into captivity. The southern kingdom lasted for another 136 years in 586 BC. Now the new regime. Uh, the, the, the new imp, uh, empire of uh, the Babylonians came in and they took the southern kingdom into captivity. So think about that. This great country, this great country that other kings would come and check out and say, I, I just want to see the wealth of it. I want to see what's going on here. This is magnificent. Now it's devastated. Inhabitants, captive. The next empire, uh, empire was the Persian Empire. And you remember that story in Ezra and Nehemiah. Xerxes said, I want to send people back and, and resettle the land. I want to develop the land. This is my empire. I wanted to build it up. And so he sent Ezra back, and, and the spiritual formation took place. The temple was rebuilt. But it, it, it says in Scripture that when, when that temple was rebuilt, those who remembered the Solomon's temple wept because it was so small, much smaller and wasn't quite as magnificent as Solomon's temple. Then Nehemiah he went back, of course, he, uh, he built the walls. And so things were going better until the next empire took place, the Greek empire. Things got really messy. A Greek ruler named Antiochus tried to force the Greek culture on the Israelites. When they wouldn't accept it, he flogged a 90-year-old priest for refusing to eat pig's flesh. And then when a mother and her seven sons would not bow down to idols, the Greek idols, he had every son killed one by one by one by one, and then the mother last. And then in an act known as the abomination of desolation, he took a pig. We've been studying the holy part of the temple. He took a pig into the holy of holies, and he had it slaughtered there on the altar. And he took the blood and he smeared it all over the temple. It's the last straw for the Israelites. The Jews revolted. In 164 BC, Judas the Maccabee led the successful revolt to take back the temple, cleaned it up, rededicated it to the Lord. The Jews still celebrate that today. What's it called? Hanukkah. The dedication or consecration that comes from that victory. And the Jews held their independence for a hundred years until the Roman Empire came to be. And in 30 years, the Roman Empire worked to squelch all signs of the rebellion. One commentator says from 67 B.C. to 37 B.C., 150,000 Jewish men were killed, died at the hands of the Romans. And during this time... 
the Romans installed a puppet king, a man named Herod. And Herod, trying to regain the favor of the Jews, now their land decimated, started rebuilding. He rebuilt the temple, Herod's temple. He wanted it as magnificent as Solomon's temple. So he started rebuilding their temple to gain their favor. Uh, There was a port on the western side of Israel that he built up and made it a fabulous area, a beautiful port, and he named it after Caesar Augustus, called Caesarea by the sea. He also rebuilt his palace. And then he went on the uh, desert, uh, part of the desert area uh, in Israel, and he built Masada, his summer palace. He did all kinds of building. That's why he was called Herod the what? The Great. But you know what? Building takes a lot of money, doesn't it? And Caesar Augustus had a lot of things going on. So that's why in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we read, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered for the purpose of what? Taxes. What a controversial decree that would have been. Just think about it. People having to uproot during this time, go back to their hometown to register so they could just pay more money to the government. And that's when Mary and Joseph left that little town of Nazareth, traveled back to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born, just as the prophet Micah said, in this little town of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now just think about that. The proverb says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it, whichever way he will. The king's heart, whoever the king is, whatever time of history, whatever empire he leads, the the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like, Like a stream of water, God just turns it whichever way he wants it so that that king and that nation and what happens next is all in line with his sovereign will. Think about it. He takes Caesar Augustus, this man, this man who thinks he's God, hubris and pride and control and evil, and he just takes his heart in his hand and he tells him to offer a decree of tax for taxation to allow Mary and Joseph to get back to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. God is sovereign over all sovereign overall. He still, he still has the heart of every king in his hand and he is moving it this way and that. We don't always understand it. We can't always figure it out. But the sovereign God who never changes still has the heart of the king in his hand and moves it whichever way he wants according to his sovereign plan. So Jesus took on flesh during some volatile times. The hatred of the Romans was, was, was high. In fact, many of the people who Jesus knew and lived with and grew up with, many of their grandfathers and fathers maybe had been killed at the hands of the Romans when the rebellion was crushed. 
Caesar Augustus revealed, revered himself as a god, and the Jews still weren't going to have any of that. They only served Yahweh. And the Jews, think of it, they had to pay double taxes. They not only had to pay taxes to Rome, but what else? Temple. They had to pay their religious taxes. And the religious taxes were going to the Pharisees and the, Sag- the Sanhedrin, and there was a lot of corruption and hypocrisy in that. So they were a people frustrated and irritated and mad at what was going on. They were treated as second-class citizens. That's why they were so excited when Jesus came. That's why they were so excited and knew that Jesus was the deliverer, the one prophesied in the Old Testament, in Hebrew called the Messiah, in Greek called the Christ. They saw him take on the religious leaders of the day, and they saw the religious leaders back down. They saw him buck the system. They saw him going into the temple, which is now corrupt, and overchanging the the tables of the moneylenders. They they saw him healing people. They heard his teaching. People were following Jesus. He was a popular figure because they were convinced he was the one who was going to establish the temporal kingdom again, right? He was going to make them an independent nation just like they had been under Solomon, and all the world was going to come and see how great they were. They wanted Jesus to be their temporal king. Something never changed, do they? We always want Jesus to be about temporal things, even today. It all came to a head at one of Jesus' greatest miracles. John the Baptist had just been killed by Herod Antipas. And Jesus went to, by himself, we can only imagine, to, to mourn and think and reflect on the life of John the Baptist. And, and while he was there, people found out he was there. And it said great crowds of people flocked to him. And he healed them. They're sick. And he taught them. And then he took a, they were hungry and there was no place for them to eat. So he found a little boy with two fish and and, and five loaves of bread. And you remember, he fed uh, 10,000. We always call it the feeding of the 5,000, but that was just the men. 10,000, we can assume, men, women, and children there on that mountain. And they said, this is our man. (laughs) This is the guy. Not only does he take on the system, not only does he show down the Pharisees and Sadducees, he heals us and he feeds us. He's the Messiah. He's the one who has come to establish the kingdom. Look at John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign, the feeding of the 10,000, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, capital P. He's the man who is coming to the world. And notice what Jesus does. He says, I'm it. Follow me. Let's establish an earthly kingdom. Let's let's do this thing. Let's establish a kingdom just like we did when Solomon was here. He doesn't quite say that, does he? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus had no, he didn't come, he had no purpose in being an earthly king. And those times in his ministry when people were getting close to making him an earthly king, he withdrew. He didn't come for that. 
You remember the story, um, the, the, the crowd's going crazy. And so Jesus puts his disciples on a boat to get them away from that because they, he doesn't want them to get into the euphoria of the crowd because they want him to set up an earthly kingdom too. And it says he went off by himself to pray. And we don't know exactly why. We can only assume that he didn't want to get caught up into that either. He sends his disciples out on the boat. Storm comes. Remember the story? He walks on the water. He gets in the boat. They arrive over in Capernaum. And then people show up again. And they say, Jesus, we were looking for you. You're the one who feeds us. We, we want you to establish this earthly kingdom. We want to follow you. And by the way, where's our food? And Jesus said, that's the only reason you want me to be here. Just so I feed you. Just for the temporal stuff. And then in chapter 6, it's always amazing, when Jesus had his largest crowds, he gave his hardest teaching. <laughs> and he gave some hard teaching. And some of the people walked away. They said, this is too hard for me. I'm not going to follow that guy. And they walked away. And then he turned to his disciples, remember? And he said, are you going to leave me too? And then Peter has that great response. Where would we go? Only you have the words of life. So, here are people who want a temporal kingdom. And when they want a temporal kingdom, when they want Jesus to establish a temporal kingdom, people are always disappointed. The Jews were, and people through history have been as well. When they want the kingdom established on earth. So, what does Jesus say about specifically how we respond to the government today? And how do we respond based on Jesus' instruction? Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. The religious leaders are getting tired of Jesus. They want to put him on the cross. They want to get rid of him. And so they send two um, polar opposite groups uh, to speak with him, to trap him. Verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The Pharisees re represented the Jews and their allegiance to God. The Herodians were those who had kind of sold out. They had adopted the Roman way for political and economic influence. And so here you have a group, two people, two groups who hate each other, but in order to trap Jesus, they're going to align themselves with each other. Look at verse 14. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you have not, are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? So here's our question. It was all, that was all set up. They wanted to kill him, so they were just saying that to set it up. Here's our question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians just go tell the officials, this guy needs to be put in jail. If they say, yeah, you do need to pay taxes to Caesar, then the, the religious leaders are not going to be happy and the Jews aren't going to be happy. So what's Jesus do? Look at verse 16. Knowing, or 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and, and, and let me look at it. And they brought one to him and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. 
And then verse 17. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So here are, here's the questions that we want to deal with in the time we have. What are the things, there's, there's the instruction, right? It's right from Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. So, what are the things we need to render to Caesar as believers, as followers of Jesus? And what are the things we need to render to God? Let's start with the things we need to render to Caesar. And in order to, to see what we need to do, turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. The early church <clears throat> always had the question, how do we handle the government and what's going on around us? We're Christians, we're following Jesus, how do we handle the government? And so Paul, writing to the church in Rome, addresses it head on. He says in chapter 13, verse 1, let every person, no asterisk, every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Now just think about that. There is no authority, whether in North Korea or Iraq, or Iran, that has not been instituted by God. Proverbs 23, he holds hard the king in his hand, and he moves it whatever way he wants to in history to fulfill and to accomplish his eternal plan. Here it is in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Therefore, since that's the case, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. If God's the one who put it there, and you resist what he put there, you're really resisting him. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not <clears throat> a terror <clears throat> to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then you do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. Verse 4, for he is God's servant for your good. He may be, he may be a pagan. He may be, he's going to be a fallen creature. He may be corrupt, but overarching that, he is God's servant for good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he'll bear the sword. He doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of consciousness, of conscience. For because of this, you pay taxes. Why do we pay taxes? Well, because God has put these authorities in place for the authorities and ministers of God attending to this very thing. So, verse 7, pay to all who is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. See, that's the biblical viewpoint. That's the biblical view. It's a biblical mindset. Governments, governments have been put in place by God. And in, in submission to him, we pay taxes, and we pay revenues, and we pay respect, and we pay honor, and we do one other thing. Turn over to 1 Timothy. So here uh, you have the pastoral epistles, three letters that Paul wrote uh, two to Timothy and one to Titus. 
Titus is a young pastor in a church, so here's Jesus, or here's Paul rather, telling Timothy how to instruct people regarding leaders. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that, uh, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all people. And now Paul gets specific. For kings, we're to pray for kings and presidents and congressmen and Supreme Court justices. We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. And here's the reason that we may lead peaceful lives and quiet lives, godly and and dignified in every way. This is good, and it pleases, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And the hearers of this had to say, Paul must have been wrong. Because he just told us to pray for the kings and those in high positions. Doesn't he know Nero is the king, the insane man, the guy who is evil from start to finish, Nero. No, Paul wasn't mistaken. Pray for Nero, he told them. Even though Nero was going to persecute Christians, even though Nero would oversee the death of both Paul and Peter. Pray for those in charge. The government is God's idea. It is God's design. And certainly, it is going to be filled with corrupt and fallen men and women. There are no other choices. But when we see it through a worldview, we see it as God's design and not man's. Honestly, I believe it's in this area where many Christians are selling out. They are selling out to a political party. They are selling out to immoral candidates for political and economic expediency. And we can't answer the questions of why we would support such a person unless we go to political and economic expediency. And when we do that, when we do that, we lose credibility because we come across as a bunch of hypocrites. When religious leaders endorse some of these candidates for political and economic expediency, we are not doing what God has called us to do to make sure that we hold people accountable for actions and that we demonstrate that even if it might affect us negatively, we don't back down on the truth of God's word. We need to be aware and we need to be involved and we need to vote. We live in a beautiful country, right? We can vote people in and out of office. Jesus was aware of everything going on. Jesus wants us to be culturally aware, like the men of Iscar in the Old Testament. They, they knew the signs of the time. When Jesus asked the disciples, what are men saying about me? He knew that the disciples had their ear to the ground. They knew what people were saying about him. 
Jesus in Luke 13 uses this great illustration, it was a terrible situation that had just happened in eastern Jerusalem. A tower had fallen down and 18 people had been killed. And Jesus uses that as an illustration. When the Pharisees come and, and, and tell Jesus that Herod's trying to kill him, remember what Jesus says? You go tell that fox. I'm not going anyplace. He is cunning and he's deceitful. Jesus didn't back down on the leaders of the day. But Jesus always gave to Caesar what was Caesar's. He knew that God had put up the government. He knew that God was using it, had even used it for him to be born in Bethlehem. Now, there's only one exception. And Jesus, we see this in Jesus' life too. There's only one exception, right? When God's law is against man's law, we always go with what? God's law regardless of the consequences. Now, that gets fuzzy sometimes for people. But sometimes it's just really clear. If God tells us to do something, and it's in, clearly in his word, and the government says don't do it, then we always do what God says to do. Peter and John, we see this again. This was a challenge in Acts. See, Peter and John put in prison because they were sharing the gospel, and they were told don't share the gospel anymore. And they said, you know what? We can't help but speak the message of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20. That was a paraphrase. You be the judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And we have to be those who always go by God's law and not the laws of, of the country when there is contradiction. So let me give you an example. I'm going to be careful here because... I know some of you have gone through a lot of pain in this area, but in our country, you can get a divorce, right, for irreconcilable differences. So, so at some point, and I know some of you are here, and you have fought and fought and fought for your marriage, and it didn't work. There are others at some point just say, you know what, it ain't working anymore. We, we fell out of love. And in our country, we can, we can get divorced, right? But God's law says no. It's only one reason. That's adultery, where, the, where this covenant is broken. So are we going to be those who go by God's laws or man's laws? And we can play that out in a lot of different ways. But when God's law is there, we always go by God's law. And, and, in the normal times, we render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And secondly, we give to God what belongs to God. So, the question is, what's God's? Well, the best way to answer that is Mark chapter 12, verses 29, when the Leaders came, and they wanted to trick Jesus again, and they said, what's the greatest commandment? This time the scribes came, the guys who wrote out the law. What's the greatest commandment? Thinking they would trap Jesus, and Jesus said the most important is, this is Mark 12, 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your mind, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What's Jesus saying? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, right? 
You give to God, your heart, your life, everything. A lot of Christians today live their lives in compartments, right? So here's home, and here's how we act at home. And here's work, and here's how we act at work. We're a little different from work and home. Sometimes we're a jerk at home, but then no one sees that, right? Because we're kind of behind our walls. We don't want to be quite as much a jerk at work because other people are seeing that. And then, you know, here's our, here's our uh, recreation uh, that's interacting with our neighbors and coaching our kids' teams. Uh, and, um, you know, then uh, there's, um, there's, there's our money. And then there's our church. So we've got all these things, and we kind of bridge. We're going to go. We, 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 you know, we, we're acting, going to act a little differently at church than we do at work. And we're going to act a little differently at work than we do it here. And we just live in these compartments. What compartment are we in at the time? But that's not what Jesus tells us to do, right, in Mark chapter 12. Jesus says, I want all of you all the time. I want all of you. I want your heart to impact your home. I want, I want your heart that's going to impact your work. I want your heart that's going to impact your recreation. I want your heart that's going to impact your money. I want your heart that's going to impact your church. It's not compartments. It's one person. And the, and, the, and the ruler of that one person, God says, I want it to be me. That's why we need to be obedient in our sexuality, in our singleness, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our vocation, in our time, with our gifts and with our money. By the way, I talked to a person after the first service from Columbia. She said, and you're right, we live in a great country. And if people have grown up where I grew up, they'd see the contrast. We live in a fantastic country. We've got all kinds of opportunities. And to whom much is given, what? Much is expected. And I've got to tell you, we, we, you know, we Christians, we'll jump, on the sin, we'll jump on the sin of homosexuality, and it is a sin. But we turned a blind eye to the sin of materialism, and it is a sin. And we're going to be standing before God one day. And that's what he's going to be dealing with a lot of Christians from the states. I gave you so much. And you spend it on yourself. I gave you so much. I gave you an opportunity to serve me in freedom. Man, I gave, you the, I gave you the opportunity to take the ball and run with it. And you were more concerned about another home or another car, or another boat. We like to pick our sins, don't we? We live in a great country, travel the world, and you just you can't wait to get back to the States. And we see the privileges we have and the freedoms we have. And while we appreciate that, we still don't worship our country, and we still don't worship our government. We honor it. We respect it. We stand up. When the national anthem is being played, we honor our country, but we don't worship it. I never forget here one time, standing here. I must have been around the 4th of July. And uh, we, have, we were worshiping. And there was a person who 
sat down the whole time. Didn't even act like they were involved in the thing. I didn't even think they were awake. And then we sang a patriotic song, and that person popped to his feet. It was all about that. See, how can we not, how can we complain, stand? How can we not raise our hands to worship God? But then we're the first to say, oh, you better stand up for the flag. I think you should, but we don't worship it. See, that's where we get into trouble. We become hypocrites. And, and, and when the world peels it back, then we don't have a leg to stand on. C.S. Lewis wrote this great book. Anyone familiar with Screwtape Letters? So Screwtape Letters is a book C.S. Lewis wrote. And it is um, the instruction of a senior devil giving a junior devil information about how to tempt, tempt people. What a great concept. What a great book. So this senior devil is giving information to a junior devil on how to tempt man, men and women. And listen to what he says in the area of politics. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him under the influence of partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings and pamphlets and politics and movements and causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. When that happens, he is ours. The more religious, the better. I can show you a full cage of those men down here. That's convicting, isn't it? When our party affiliation becomes the end and Christianity just becomes a means, man, we're in trouble. And we as Christians have to say, regardless, I am not going to worship the government. I love this country. We love this country. Great privileges, but we're going to use what God has given us during this time to further the gospel, not further ourselves. We're going to be worshipers of the living God, not a flag, as much as I love the flag. Not a constitution, as great as a constitution is. This is our instruction. And we worship Jesus Christ alone. Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus came, back in Isaiah chapter 9, said this. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. He's going to be both human and divine. 
child is going to be born, and he's the son of God. And the government will be on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. That's the picture of a, of a robe, a majestic robe, the king's robe, draped over the shoulders of Jesus Christ. The government will be on his shoulders. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, regardless of what country you're from, that he is who he said he was all along. He's a wonderful counselor. He's wisdom and mercy and grace and justice. Finally, he will rule with, with, with those things. He is the mighty God. He, he has the power to execute every plan. He holds the part of the king in his hand, remember? He's the everlasting father. Uh, his kingdom is everlasting. He's the prince of peace. Finally, with Jesus, there will be peace on earth. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with the capital being moved to Jerusalem, but I can just promise you that is not going to usher in world peace. Of the increase of his government, peace will be no end. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. How about you? That's the, that's, that's, that's the leader I want to worship. That's the one I want to follow. That's the one I want to practically live my life under. Only one government that's going to last, that's going to be on the shoulders of Jesus. And there's only one leader to worship. His name is Jesus Christ. So the question I want to leave you with, you're worshiping God or government. You cannot do both. I'm going to hand this back over to our campuses. And we're going to pray here, and then Kirk's going to lead us in the last song. Father, Father, during election times, we never, there is such anxiety and fear in our church. We, we begin to think, I, I guess, that, that it's going to depend on the person that's elected your, your, your plan can't succeed unless the right person's there. Lord, you're the, you're the one who puts the right people there. And we thank you for the, for the privilege of the participation in that. But Father, we pray that our, that our participation would be prayerful and would be godly and we would never do anything for, for political expedience or economic expedience over the instruction we find in your word. A lot of us, Lord, are involved in the stuff. It takes up so much of our mind and our thinking, and we watch it on the news and read about it, mull it over, talk about it. Lord, help us to be as passionate about you as we are for a party or a politician or a tax reform or a Supreme Court ruling. Those are important, Lord, but, oh, our life with you doesn't even compare in, in importance. Help us to be the ones who worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. <clears throat> Help us to know in our head that truth. Help us to be, have the passion in our heart. Help us to live that out. Lord, don't allow us to confuse <clears throat> the world around us because of our political, our political efforts. Keep us focused on you. 
I pray in Christ's name. Amen.